Welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we are on part three of Monroe. Uh, welcome back. I hope you've listened to the first two episodes. And we're going to get right into it with the start of the economic panic of 1819. Uh just before we start, I want to thank all the listeners, invite you to uh, tell your friends. And uh, we got a recommendation from one of our new listeners, Josh Leet, who told us he likes to listen to this to help him fall asleep at night. So with that, <laughs> with that great uh, recommendation, uh, please spread the word around to your friends. Okay, so we left off the last episode with Monroe in his first term doing pretty well there was an expansion of slavery however at the time and economic i believe speculation is what started the panic right? so the um, what historians refer to as the panic of 1819 was the first economic downturn in u.s history uh we Think of the United States starting in 1789 with the adoption of the U.S. Constitution. And so for about 40 years, they had a pretty good economic run. And then in 1819, caused by uh, speculation on Western lands, uh, they had a bank panic, essentially a liquidity crisis for the banks. So... uh, Surveyors would go west, they'd map out new lands, offer them for sale, and then uh, the, the, the real estate speculators would, would buy the property, resell it, and they drove the prices up to the degree that uh, when people went to pay their mortgage, people living on the lands couldn't pay their mortgages. Uh, and this occurred to such a, a large extent, so many people had paid so much money for their Western lands and either weren't making their money back in, in, in reselling them or were unable to produce enough agricultural products from their land and sell it at market. Uh, they just basically ran out of money and there was such a high amount of that happening that the economy froze up. The banks just didn't have money to continue normal business. And they began calling in debts. And people who saw their uh, debts being called in before the terms were up or uh, coming to the end of the terms where they had to pay back their debts, not having money to do so, just wiped out the currency reserves in the United States. And, and at this time, there was no fiat currency. I mean, right, there was no fiat right, currency. It was right, all gold-backed. Right. So it was more limited in supply. So the, the, the money supply quickly uh, ran out, and the government uh, didn't have the normal means that they had used up until then, which was selling Western lands to continue their operations so so there were basically people coming in buying up the lands at the government price and then reselling for a higher price that was a bubble right eventually i'm sorry in a way it sounds like a little bit like the 2008 um crisis uh 
there, there, there are similarities. I mean, oddly enough, you know, we, we continue to find new ways to work ourselves into liquidity uh, crises. Back then, of course, the government was much smaller. They controlled a, a far, far smaller portion of the economy. Uh, Monroe came up with the idea, being that he had a very, very comprehensive view of the economy, he said, if we can't get government revenue from the sale of Western lands, we can increase our revenue from our other source, which was tariffs, imposts, and duties on imported products. Uh, so he proposed raising tariffs. So at that point in time, in the early part of the U.S. government, the biggest income was from the customs? Was, was from the imposts of tariffs. So like we ship in some British goods and we tax them on it. And we tax, we tax them. And then the other big one was selling Western land. Was selling Western land. What kind of imports were our main imports? So mostly manufactured goods, mostly finished products from Europe, furniture, glass, even even things like nails, or or metal products or plows. I mean, the American industry at that point was still in its infancy. Um, it was mainly small factories that supplied local demands, and in the South, where there was not a lot of uh, not a lot of agricultural activity, uh, or, I'm sorry, not a lot of industrial activity, uh, they depended more heavily on the imports. So when uh, the, the tariff increase was proposed, the southern states found that they were at a, at a massive economic advantage in comparison to the more developed, more urbanized, uh, and, and definitely more industrial, industrially developed north. Because they didn't need to pay higher prices for the goods? Um, basically because cotton, the, 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 the cultivation of cotton, the export of long fiber cotton, which was developed from the cotton gin, you know, which could pull out the seeds. Uh, the southern planters, you know, these men who owned massive, enormous plantations, and sold bales and bales and bales and bales of cotton to the British, the Belgians, the French, the Dutch, the, uh, manuf the textile manufacturers in the north and across the ocean in Europe found that they didn't really need to invest money in uh, manufacturing. They inv invested their money instead in more land, planting more cotton, and in slaves. What? I'm sorry, before we go to this... What is a big southern plantation at this time? A thousand acres? Um, I think at this point they were already starting to get up to the 25, 35,000-acre type holdings. Washington had 50,000 acres. 50,000? 50, uh, 50, so what is that, like 20 square miles or something? Uh, I, think it's a little, I think it's a little more than that. I think it's about half as big as a contemporary American county. Wow. Okay, so you can see how the slave investment is kind of coming to the fore. Yeah, we were still importing slaves. The, the transatlantic slave uh, 
marketing, transatlantic slave transportation was still going on. We were still importing slaves from the Caribbean, you know, and... and that ended I, when, 1824? Yes. Okay. And I use, I use the term importing slaves, I mean, because to, to them, as, as despicable as it is, uh, they viewed it as like importing cattle or importing other, other livestock. I mean, they were, they were very ruthless and heartless uh, in, in, their, in their importation of human beings. Okay, so the South is in a better is in a way is in better shape than the North because they're not as dependent on manufactured goods. Well, they also were dependent on currency because um, they would sell the cotton to the British or, or the French or the Dutch or the Belgians, and then they would pay for everything that they were importing slaves farm implements, uh, livestock, with cash. They, they didn't have a barter economy. So when the uh, liquidity crisis occurred, the southern planters basically found themselves uh, uh, strapped for cash. It wasn't like we're going to send so many bales of cotton and get back so much furniture. I mean, there was actually a, a, a price for the cotton. The planters would, would then receive cash payments or credit for it in London and American banks and then they in turn would, would, would buy the things they needed and they, they had a pretty high lifestyle they, they, they supported themselves in a grandiose manner so they needed a lot of cash and when the, when the supply of cash dried up and they could no longer sell land uh, the, the sale of slaves was was getting more difficult uh, because the demand for slaves was was going up uh, enormously, and they they again it it's disgusting to talk about human beings in this way, but the supply of of, of young African Americans couldn't keep pace with the demand for labor, so they had to keep importing slaves, paying for them. Uh, buying new slaves were they they cheaper to import than to um sell domestically they were probably cheaper to import than to produce like in kentucky or virginia and then send to the south um the, the 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 people who were and again you know this is a callous and and uh horrible way of thinking about human beings but the people who were raised in the United States had families, had relatives here. They wanted to stay with them. So uh, there was a, 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 an added cost. I mean, if, if they took people from the Caribbean or they took people from Africa, these were uh, single individuals, adults, who they could uh, push out into the fields and, and, and basically work them until they couldn't get any return back from them then they had to be replaced and how and just okay. a horrible way to treat people how did uh, the north get affected by the lack of liquidity so the north wanted to raise the uh, the tariffs it was advantageous to them uh, in terms 
of developing industry. Uh, but it was also advantageous to them because they also had to buy buy land. I mean, the, the, the northern population, the northern free population was expanding rapidly. People were moving west. There was a market for western land. People had to pay for the land. So uh, they wanted to keep the supply of money coming. And they thought if we raise the tariffs, we're going to get an influx of money. Uh, we can then invest, we can make more manufacturing, and uh, we can create kind of a virtuous cycle of, of industry fueling agricultural growth or the other way around. But in any case, the yeoman farmers producing uh, agricultural commodities, food, livestock, lumber, building supplies, so on like that, selling it for manufacturing, and creating jobs and, and creating economic uh, economic growth. The Southerners didn't see it that way and tended to vote against uh, increasing tariffs. So the Southern representatives in the House and the Southern senators in the Senate opposed the tariffs. The Northern representatives and the Northern senators wanted to see them in, uh, see them rise. So the, the uh, Northerners kind of thought the South had higher representation in the House than was warranted by their free population. So they wanted to see the slave population stricken from the census enumeration. And that would cut out anywhere from 20 to 40 representatives from the South in the U.S. House of Representatives, depending on the decade of census. What, what was Monroe's opinion about getting rid of the... That's the Three-Fifths Compromise, right? Well, yes, we're talking about the Three-Fifths Compromise. That is an enslaved person at that time, which counted... Uh, they basically... Uh, what did they do? They took the number of slaves, divided it by five, then multiplied it by three to determine the represent the Southern representation. And, and what was Monroe's opinion on it? Well, Monroe basically thought that he wanted to continue it, that it was in the Constitution, uh, it was law, it maintained the political balance between the North and the South, and... and Monroe was all about conciliation and balancing, uh, balancing uh, interests, and then he he saw the president as as being the one who had to kind of broker any deals between them. So, what happens when Monroe puts in the tariffs? Like, do they go over well? So the Southerners completely uh, opposed it, and it, it it broke apart and killed the Federalist Party. Uh, the Federalists being the ones who wanted the tariffs. Uh, they wanted the money coming in for the banks. Uh, they wanted the uh, manufacturing. And essentially, the uh, Federalist Party broke up over the issue. They, they had no support in the South, and even their support in, in mercantile Northeast diminished to the point that they were no longer a force in national politics. So that it, this, this killed the Federalist Party. But, but this was something that the Federalist Party was backing. 
Uh, the Federalist Party at that point essentially wanted to see slaves taken off the census rolls and only count the free population, the free why, blacks. Why do you keep bringing that in with the tariffs? Because the North had to have enough votes to get Because without the enumeration of the slaves, even at three-fifths, the number of Southern representatives in the House would have dropped substantially. And the North would be able to pass the tariffs. And then the, then the North would be able to pass the tariffs in, in the House. And then it would hit the Senate where they were matched. And then, you know, with the president supporting the tariffs, with the House strongly in support of the tariffs, uh, they could make deals that so some of the Southern senators would, enough to. of them would go along with it to pass it. So how did they get it passed? Well, it didn't pass until uh, 1824 after, uh, after Monroe, Monroe. So Monroe was never able to get it through. Right. So did they get out of the recession when they were So the, the recession just kind of petered along until his term went out. But the recession was the background behind the what I was taught to call the Maine misery compl- compromise. Maine being the state of Maine, misery being the state of Missouri. But I was raised in a school where uh, most of the teachers and most of the kids were pretty strong abolitionists and so they viewed it as a pretty miserable compromise and in uh, less uh, skewed historical accounts it's referred to as the compromise of 1820 okay so the compromise of 1820 is under um, Monroe still and this does eliminate the three-fifths the three-fifths stayed until the abolition of slavery in 1864? Right. In, yeah. 65, 64. Okay. So, what is the amendment? All it does is enter in Maine and Missouri as equal states, one slave, one free. Well, it, it, it uh, also um, sort of uh, put in place forever the three fifths rule. Okay. How were they able to get the tariffs passed with the tariff hike passed without the uh, three-fifths being eliminated? It just, it just eventually hit the point that the northern population it. was big enough and the economic conditions were bad enough that even, uh, well, the, let's say the moderate southern uh, politicians supported it. The fire, fire eaters continued to oppose it. Okay. All right, I want to move on from here. Let's go to... Um, do you want to make any more comments about uh, the federal government's size or panics or recessions or anything of that nature before we move to the Monroe Doctrine? Well, I want to say one other thing about the Maine-Missouri uh, Compromise, that it was pretty... I, in, in my opinion, it's pretty pro-Southern because they drew a line from the southern, the Arkansas-Missouri line, west, and said that no slave states would be admitted north of that line. And Missouri, of course, was is, is entirely north of that line. So they, they, they admitted another slave state north of the line. Now, at that time, 
the boundary of the United States was um, the the western Mississippi, the western reaches of the of the Louisiana Purchase, which is where hundred um, tenth parallel. It it it's 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 kind of funnel shaped. If you look at the the map of the Louisiana Purchase, it's it's shaped kind of like a funnel, and it 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 narrows down towards New Orleans. Yeah. And then widens at the top, so there was a lot more land north of the line than there was south of the line, and Mexico essentially was the land to the southwest of us. Okay. So the main Missouri compromise not only set up this bad situation about the three fifths enumeration, but it also set up the dynamic that if we wanted to expand slavery and, and the slave-owning states wanted to get more land, more representatives, grow more cotton, and get richer, make slave get richer and make slavery more of a viable institution by continuing to push west into Texas. They have to do a war against Mexico, big, and which is what happened. Which is what happened. It's interesting that although their land holdings and the way the cotton economy worked that um, they didn't have to industrialize too much in order to continue making money but there was a finite resource of land so they needed to keep pushing that so they needed to keep and and the other thing is that the 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 cotton cultivation wears out the soil cotton takes a lot of nutrients and even with um, extensive fertilization, like with wheat, you can use you can use manure, and the wheat kernels, the, the 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 remnants of the wheat, the stalks, and so on, and you can plow that back under, and you kind of have a natural cycle of fertilization and uh, uptake of. Uh, food from the soil but with cotton because it's a fiber animals can't eat it so it's it's continually taking nutrients out of the soil and of course they were exporting most of the cotton so they were taking whatever water and nutrients they took out of the soil and they were they were sending it away so cotton is 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 tough on the soil so they had to continually rotate crops which was not nearly as profitable for them. So they had to have much bigger holdings to continue to uh, finance the lavish lifestyles that they began to uh, to enjoy in the South. And probably also to finance the uh, poor whites who they needed to kind of keep the slaves in line. Well, not kind of keep the slaves in line, but who they needed to enforce uh, slavery. Okay, um, I wouldn't mind talking more about the that dynamic, but I actually do want to move on to Monroe Doctrine. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to say about panics, or did you just want to move? No, on we to can Monroe we Doctrine? can definitely move on to the uh, to the Monroe Doctrine. Okay, so tell us about where does the need come from? We know Monroe has an extensive foreign diplomacy career so he's like but for a while he was considered like pro-european and 
pro-mercantile. Well, he's pro-trade. Pro yeah. So what happens, how does he come up with the Monroe Doctrine? Why is it necessary? And what are the effects? So uh, when we go back, when we come back to Jefferson and, and uh, Madison, we'll have to talk about Haiti because Haiti is a, is a particular case and was an enormously difficult problem for American diplomats and American democracy. Psychologically, right? Uh, yeah, in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. But so we have to kind of put Haiti to the side. But if, if, if we think a little bit about Latin American I'm sorry, history... When you, I'm sorry, when you, just to help the listeners a little bit, when you say we're going to put Haiti to the side, what you mean is the threat of insurrection, right? Uh, Haiti was like scary okay. to the Americans because it was a slave rebellion where they essentially wiped out the slave-owning class. And then, of course, it was a French colony. Napoleon sent over some of the finest European soldiers to suppress the rebellion. Uh, Toussaint, the Haitian leader, uh, basically used the tactics that Kutinov used in Russia against the same army, same generals, and crushed them. Hmm. So it was an extremely scary thing for the American slave-owning elite. Okay, now you want to talk about Latin America. So uh, Bolivar, who yeah. I think is familiar to most of our listeners, I mean, and if, if not, just Google him. I mean, there's extensive biographies about him which I, I, I don't want to carry uh, a lot about Latin history, except that Bolivar was the great liberator. There's a number of other men associated with him. Bolivar lived in what we call Venezuela now. Uh, he led armies across the northern tier or the northern coast of South America. They crossed the Andes. They worked their way down. Uh, the western coast of South America around to about Chile or so. So uh, a fairly large number, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, um, Peru, all became independent pretty much together. And there's a, a series of battles that they fought that are very famous, I'm not going to go into now. But in any case, Bolivar was able to liberate uh, Latin America. What's the period like? Eighteen around this time. So yeah, this is, this is around no the late the late eighteen teens, and early twenties. Okay. So by uh, Mexico was became an independent country, I believe eighteen seventeen. Okay. The rest eighteen nineteen, and we pretty much recognized all of them in the early eighteen twenties. Okay, they weren't independent in terms of like. We are a democracy, like we're, or they were. Were they? We're a republic. Okay. Uh, they set up republican governments, and the the American model was very useful to them. Okay. So you know they had the presidencies, they had uh, their legislatures arranged with upper and lower chambers. They had a separate court system. They, so the Montesquieuan uh, triad of executive, legislative, judicial branches was very attractive to them. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily thought it's working up there, so let's try it here. But uh, they adopted a similar model. So there were uh, five countries that developed along our southern border. Uh, 
rebellion against Spain. And the other European powers saw that their financial interests were threatened. Uh, there were certain natural resources that they were accustomed to taking away from those countries, which now they couldn't get because they had to pay for them, you know, not just appropriate them as they had before. And so there was a, a, a degree of uh, imperialistic uh, impetus coming from the Europeans. This is basically how colonialism ends. In this hemisphere. Okay, so tell us about the Monroe Doctrine. So uh, Monroe realized that there were these nascent republics to our south. Uh, we really, at this point, weren't strong enough to do a lot to support them. But I think the uh, American public opinion, and certainly the opinion among the American elites, was pretty favorable towards them. That these are independent countries. Uh, they've basically pushed the European dynasties out of our hemisphere. Uh, Brazil has a different history. They weren't so much affected by this. But at least in the Caribbean, in the, in the waters that uh, lap up onto uh, American shores, USA shores, and in the areas that we had a lot of trade with, we had sister republics. We had people who had a Republican background. Um, Bolivar's background and most of his uh, officers and political advisors were what we refer to as Creoles, which are whites who were born in this hemisphere, not people who came from Europe. Uh, at this point, not mestizos, but, but the Creole population, the, the, the uh, born in the country, born in the province, white population. So they were people who Monroe and the other American diplomats and the other American thought leaders felt a lot of kinship for. I mean, they spoke Spanish, they were Catholics, but they could see past that because they were fellow Republicans with, with a small r. You know, they believed in our form of government. But they were in danger of being suppressed by the French, the British, the other European uh, mercantile and imperialist powers. So Monroe, and this is this is kind of a big deal because a lot of uh, American diplomatic specialists at this point kind of thought Britain can protect us. But Monroe set out, this is the Americas, this is the Western Hemisphere, this is the hemisphere of freedom and republicanism, and we will not allow the crowned heads of Europe to reimpose their imperialistic uh, forms of government or their imperialistic economic or colonial designs back onto the Latin sister republic republics uh, to the south of us. So was it that ideological or was it more practical? Both. Okay. Uh, obviously, um, we, were, we were still settling the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, there were probably Europeans who thought we didn't pay them enough for it. They could still grab it back from us. 
Uh, there were definitely European uh, powers, uh, parties, for political formations, however they were arranged at that time, who wanted to get back over here and thought we could even have a weak government in uh, Lima, but us basically control the banking and the business. And uh, Monroe just wasn't having that. He just said, these are American republics. The United States will protect their sovereignty. Why was Europe so willing to comply with Monroe's assertions? Partly because of the economic clout that the United States had at that time with our control of cotton and uh, a few other a few other products, but also because we were starting to build up a navy and it uh, was starting to be a major a major power. And partly because by this time, uh, the European powers had just fought through the Napoleonic Wars. They're tired of war. And there was also a, a strong reactionary movement uh, by the, the crowned heads of Prussia, Russia, and Austria-Hungary, who were pressuring the more liberal mercantile states along the maritime boundaries of Europe. So it was partly because of what was going on in Europe. It was partly because the Latins uh, were welcoming our help. It was partly because of the United States growing economic power. And it was also because uh, Monroe felt strong enough to project power into, into Latin areas. And remember, Monroe and Jackson had just taken over Florida. So uh, Monroe had flexed American muscles. Jackson did stuff that a lot of contemporary historians would say should have resulted in his court-martial, uh, definitely acts of dubious legality, but, but Jackson took Florida, and, and Jacksonville, Florida, is named after him in memory of Jackson's military adventures or military expeditions into Florida to gain it for the United States. What, what quickly, I guess, what would you say are the long-term effect of the Monroe Doctrine good or bad? I mean, one thing you would think is that with less colonial meddling in our hemisphere, we were able to kind of become a, something of a uh, isolationist country. Well, that would that would be the that would be the big thing that the uh, Monroe Doctrine uh, solidified our, our 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 claim over the Louisiana Purchase. Even though we hadn't settled it yet, even though our military was kind of puny and couldn't control it, uh, the fact that we had these bulwarks, you know, the bulwark of the Caribbean, the bulwark of the, the Western Atlantic, uh, the doctrine of the legality of the American republics, including the United States, and our uh, insistence that European powers could no longer impose imperialistic or colonial uh, regimes on us. All these things assured that we could develop independently from what was going on in Europe. Would you say that there were any downsides to it? No, <laughs> but obviously, you know, being historians, we, we, we have to we have to say uh, the balancing things. The 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 probably the biggest thing was the sense of chauvinism 
and the sense of expansion and expansionism uh, that uh, the Monroe Doctrine imbued in the American uh, ruling elites. I mean, they thought the French can't come back in, the Dutch can't get started, the Portuguese can't come back, the Spaniards can't come back. But uh, we didn't really see that we had to uh, respect Mexico. Right. I mean, it's an interesting, another thing that's really interesting about it is how, you know, we're declare our independence in 1776. This is 50, not even 50, it's 45 years later. Right. And yet, I mean, maybe you think of Latin America as having historically been 40 years behind economically or something like that, but it's just strange to me how they, how when all of this got aligned and the foreign meddling stopped, they didn't catch up right away. Well, there was still uh, the Creole attitude that they should own everything. They still had those big farms and big ranches. So in a lot of sta- in a lot of instances, even though they were Republicans and uh, devoted to independence and and the, the, the self-rule of their countries, they were the ones ruling it. Yeah. Um, let's let's finish off by talking about Monroe's legacy, the things that we can remember when we're thinking about him. And what you wanna? Who we're so, going to be so, talking about next? So, the the biggest legacy of Monroe is the era of good feeling. The idea that uh, the American nation, after the War of eighteen twelve, came together as a distinct identity, even though there was a lot of sectionalism, even though, as we've pointed out, there was a lot of arguing, even though there was still a vast slave population. We still had this idea of ourselves as Americans. Um, the government was still pretty weak. I mean, it, it, it could enforce certain things like the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, and, and that was important to show that the government did have some power. The U.S. Navy could patrol. Uh, we could send military expeditions uh, as, as needed, as uh, pointed out in Florida. Uh, we were beginning to develop as an industrial country. We still had a lot of influence on European politics because of the cotton trade. But I think the most important aspect of the developing American nation was this uh, demographic, was the demographics. The uh, native-born free white population was expanding very rapidly. And they wanted to, they wanted to have their own farms. They wanted to have their own lands. They were pushing west. Uh, they were moving out of the what we would consider the border south regions, Tennessee and those kind of areas, uh, where they, they, they either the plantations weren't possible or they were kind of played out. They were already moving into the northeastern Mexican provinces, and they would uh, later uh, found the Republic of Texas. But mainly, this was a period when. Uh, people had big families. They looked west. They thought, we can just go there. We can take over the Indians. We can take our slaves with us. We can just keep pushing west. And the northern tier 
uh, the Nebraska, those areas, Minnesota, there was more of a sense of, of, of free soiling, abolitionism, so on like that. Uh, parallel movement in the South of, of wanting to take our slaves and, and go West. But everybody thought, let's push out into that empty area of the continent. All right. Who do you want to cover next? So um, I'd like to do Clinton and then move on to Truman. I mean, Clinton, I think, is a very fascinating president. He's, he's recent. Uh, I met him a few times. He's somebody who I, I still get excited about and about his presidency. And then Harry S. Truman is one of the more um, uh, subst- substantive presidents of the, the, the modern times. I mean, a lot has changed since the fall of communism and the end of the Cold War. Uh, but Clinton, because he uh, presided over the, the, the end of the Cold War and, as they say, was an exciting political figure, and then move on to Truman because he kind of set up the uh, period of American dominance and the so-called American century. Okay, before I let you off, what, where do you put Monroe in the historical rankings for president? So I think uh, there's a pretty widespread historical assessment that he was an effective president, a successful president. Um, he probably is not anywhere close to a near great, you know, say along the lines of Polk, who annexed Texas. Uh, but he was a good, hardworking chief executive. Uh, given the constraints of the government at the time, he was uh, he was effective. But again, uh, he was also deeply constrained by uh, the small government kind of ideology that, that uh, persisted at the time. Yeah, he kind of had a conservative nature about him. In a way. And he had that conservative nature. All right. Well, thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure talking to you about Monroe, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it. Uh, we'll see you back hopefully next week. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And have a great uh, day, and see you soon.